0: Hi, listeners. We've got a special treat for you today a three part episode on one of our most often requested topics the 1978 fireman strike. This recording was done as part of a Rhodes College class assignment by our friend Bonnie Whitehouse. You're here, our very own Joe Lowry, on this one. So let's get started. Here's episode one. Mm-hmm.
1: It's not hard to see that Memphis as a city embraces its history, even the parts of history that are hard to talk about. From the Stacks Museum to the Nathan Bedford Forest Monument, there seems to be an open discussion about how our city got to where it is now. With all this transparency, you wouldn't expect an event that included more than 300 fires that burned $6 million worth of property, a violent march on City Hall, a high-speed chase, and thousands of National Guardsmen being called into Memphis to be forgotten about. But that's what happened. The event I'm talking about is the 1978 police and fire strike, when the protective employees of the city were fed up with the way they had been treated by the city government. They felt disrespected, underpaid, and things had finally come to a breaking point. There were three strikes in the summer of 1978, two by the Firemen's Union, local 1784 of the International Association of Firefighters, and one strike by the Memphis Police Association. You will find no plaque on street corners commemorating the strikes as you will see for the site of the first Piggly Wiggly grocery store in Memphis. You will find no Wikipedia page on the event. On the Memphis Police Department history page, it mentions only that the police went on strike, and in the Memphis Fire Museum, the same glossing over of a very complex event is found. Only one piece of academic work, a dissertation by Charles Stephen Palmer, has been written about this event, though the strikes do occasionally show up in journal articles about law, labor, and the economy. With such little attention being given to the 1978 strikes, it becomes obvious that this is something Memphis wanted to forget. If one did want to learn about this topic, you could head to the Memphis Public Library archives and read the newspaper coverage of the strike. But using only one source is no way to learn about history. The police and fire strikes do not fit into the master narrative of Memphis history, which focuses mostly on music and civil rights. Labor history in the collective consciousness of Memphis begins and ends with the sanitation workers' strike of 1968. While the city does remember this strike, it has been turned into more of a civil rights movement than a labor issue, which is what it began as. The sanitation workers' strike fits much more comfortably in Memphis history as a movement for justice than a movement for fair labor contracts. And as the police and fire strikes were purely a labor issue, there really is no place to talk about it. My name is Bonnie Whitehouse, and this is Forgotten History, a three-part mini-series on the events of that summer. I'm here to tell a fuller story, and to bring this part of the city's history back from the corners of an archive where it has been shoved and forgotten about. While the strikes I am discussing involve both the police and fire departments, I will be focusing on the fire department's side of the story. As much as the events of 1978 have been forgotten, there was much more attention given to the police strike at the time, so the story of those involved in the fire union remains the most untold. The story has almost exclusively been told by those on the outside, the newspaper and media. Using research and interviews, I have been able to discover a deeper truth about these strikes, and to begin to ask why, as labor leader Tommy Powell said after the conflict, we should just forget all about the police and fire strikes. What caused the strike? Of course, most strikes happen for economic reasons. The workers aren't getting paid enough, which was definitely the case in the police and fire strikes of 1978. At the time, they were getting paid less per hour than bus drivers and sign painters in Memphis. Another big sticking point for the fire union was that they wanted to be given shift differential pay for their overtime. But this strike was about a lot more than just money. The firemen felt hugely underrespected respected by the city, and their frustration had been growing for years. I interviewed two former firefighters, Joe Lowry and Jerry Caldwell, both of whom went on strike in 1978, and I asked them their feelings on the city's relationship with unions and the respect or lack thereof that they felt from the city, which ultimately led to the strike.
0: The city of Memphis has had a long history of doing shady things to their employees. Yeah, absolutely. Through the years, our government has had a opinion where we are not going to recognize the union. We fired firefighters mm-hmm. in the thirties. We fired fifteen firefighters, including four captains, for trying to start a union. We've had the same way with thing with the sanitation strike. That was not a black white issue. That was a union issue. Mm-hmm. Don't let anybody tell you That's different. Right. It was a union thing. Loeb was not. He did not want to deal with the union. Pure and simple.
1: And it wasn't just about the city recognizing unions. The firemen weren't getting the respect they deserved. The city cared little for its firefighters.
0: I mean, it was one of those kind of deals where the mayor wanted you to come and dig a garden. They'd call you up and they'd say, Captain Whitehouse, get your crew together. You're going to go over to the mayor's house, you're going to build him this, or you're going to fix it. Did I say this right? Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have a choice. They didn't pay you any overtime. They didn't do it. They just ordered you to do it, and you did it. You know why? Because if you didn't, they would fire you. So all of these little things led up to, oh, we'd yes. had it.
1: Then, only to make a bad situation worse, in 1971, a report called the Fry Report was released. It was a private study which recommended to the Memphis City Council that policemen get a raise of $1,056 and the firemen a raise of only $624. City Council acted on this report and thus broke pay parity between the Memphis Police and Fire Departments for the first time in their history. This, along with unfair management and growing economic pressures, led to a more radical mindset in the fire union and to a city administration that was becoming increasingly unreceptive to unions.
0: And so then this thing comes along with this parity thing. Constant turmoil, constant turmoil. These are the things that led up. And, And it was as much about respect. We had had it with the city and we weren't going to take it anymore was it right no Mm -hmm. if we had waited maybe and let impasse because you know the city had brought in an impasse person but you know our guys had gotten to the point where we were tired of management the mayor and, and the people running the city basically thinking we were We weren't weren't worth anything. And when you tell somebody that we're going to give the police department a 10% raise, we're only going to give the fire department a 5% raise? What do you think that does?
1: The pay parity thing was about money, but it was also largely a way for the city to weaken the link between the police and fire departments.
2: We had a huge relationship with the police department. Uh, We covered for each other. And uh, this resulted in not uh, a complete separation Part of the goal of that deal was to drive a wedge between us, Because uh, separate and weaken. You
1: know. So you think the city was trying to kind of I, get I, more I, control I over like you? Now.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. There's never been friction between patrol officers and firefighters. Rub comes at the command level, it comes at the boss level, it comes at the city level, it comes at the director's level. It's never with the men.
1: So the firemen were unhappy, and they felt they were being played by the city. Then enter a city government with good old Southern anti-union sentiments that wouldn't bargain with the unions but expected them to take whatever was offered. And you can see where the problem would arise. But let's go back and do some history and learn about unions in general in the South, and in Memphis specifically. <laughs> ¶¶ why this region of the country has never been receptive to unions. One of the most popular theories is this idea of paternalism of Southern management. It stems from what has been called the plantation mentality, where bosses provide everything for their workers, housing, food, clothing, and take care of the families of the workers. Of course, this practice and mindset started with slavery when the bosses and management had complete control over their workers and their lives. But as slavery ended, this mindset remained. Boss Crump, the staunchly anti-union mayor of Memphis, is a perfect example of this idea. If you were a loyal worker for him, you and your family had nothing to worry about. He would provide for and protect you. But if you questioned his absolute power by, say, asking for a union, not only would you be fired, but you and your family would be blacklisted from any type of work for the city in the future. For unions to be able to exist in the South, this plantation mentality and paternalistic attitude had to be overcome. Crump also didn't like unions because they could scare away businesses. He felt squashing unions was a way to bring jobs and industry to Memphis. And this worked with companies like Ford and Firestone, who brought production to Memphis because they were guaranteed an easy time with their workers. Mayor Loeb is the next important figure in Memphis labor history. He was the mayor during the sanitation workers strike in 1968, and before and after the strike he insisted that unions had no place with public employees. He had tried throughout his administration to stop city employees from unionizing. However, pressure started to build on the city to change their policy regarding municipal employee unions. Across the country, judges were ruling that city laws banning public employee unions were unconstitutional. Memphis's traditional position on unions would not stand up in court. So on March 4, 1969, a resolution was passed by the city council and Mayor Loeb that said the city would recognize municipal unions. The resolution stood that all public employee contracts would have a no-strike clause. The police and fire departments in Memphis had tried a few times in the 20th century to organize themselves to better their situations. Most of their attempts had been unsuccessful due to a simple lack of interest from the membership to be involved in a union. When they did succeed, they got pay raises or civil service protection. It wasn't until the law allowed for their existence and there were unifying issues the membership were passionate about that a union was formed, which came with the Fry Report and the Break and Pay parody in 1971. Then, under Mayor Wythe Chandler in 1978, on the heels of years of frustration with the city, Curon Huddleston and Sam Posey ran for fire union president and vice president, respectively, on the grounds that they would work to bring back pay parity with the police. At the time, the Memphis Fire Department was one of the top two fire departments in the country, but were 17th in pay. Even compared to other, smaller, southern cities, the firemen were not getting paid enough. The police were also becoming frustrated with the city. While they were getting paid more than the firemen, both groups were making less per hour than the bus drivers and sign painters in Memphis, and the protective employees of the city felt underappreciated. Couple this with a city whose negotiation tactics included waiting until the last minute of contract negotiations to offer a contract and then say it was their final offer, and expect the union officials to sell the agreement to the union membership last minute, never offering real talks or negotiations on the contract, and it's easy to see where tensions could break. Besides the situation specific to Memphis, across the nation during the summer of 78 there was a movement of police and fire workers banding together for better working conditions. Nashville and Knoxville both saw police slowdowns and police in Cleveland went on strike while firefighters in Louisville and Chattanooga narrowly avoided a strike. And even outside the realm of protective employees, a movement including all sorts of public employees demanding pay raises was happening. That summer saw strikes by garbage workers in Philadelphia and transit workers in Washington and Boston. The labor issues in these cities didn't turn into tragedies as it did in Memphis, which we can blame on the brinksmanship bargaining of the Memphis city government, and a place and time that was not ready to let public employee unions have power they deserved. It seemed that Memphis had learned almost nothing from the sanitation workers' strike of 1968, where the city focused on the civil rights side of the strike rather than the labor side because that would make it easier to reconcile with. The city never seemed to make an effort to avoid an impasse. With a paternalistic mindset, they just assumed power over a group of people who wanted to be autonomous. And this is how we ended up with a firefighter strike, with 300 fires that burned $6 million worth of city property, which, instead of stopping there, inflated into the worst labor crisis in Memphis history, including a strike by the Memphis police and a second strike by the firemen. On July 1, 1978, picket lanes began appearing at fire stations throughout Memphis as 1,400 firemen prepared to strike. As the strike began, fire union president Kieran Huddleston told the gathered strikers that, quote, We didn't do this. The mayor pushed us into it. It is not our responsibility. The man has pushed us out onto the street. This is the position the firemen and police would hold throughout the summer. The city government was so unreceptive to labor negotiations that drastic measures were all the unions had left to work with. As news of the strike spread, the city council expressed surprise that the contract offered had been rejected by the union. It seemed like a fair deal to them. At 10 a.m., three hours after the strike began, Mayor Wythe Chandler held a press conference saying that he had fired the executive board of the firemen's union and that he would not continue negotiations while the firemen were on strike. By 2 p.m. that day, the mayor had called in 860 National Guardsmen for peacekeeping and firefighting purposes. While the union would not fight any fires while they were on strike, They weren't about to let people die because of them, so they set up emergency units to rescue people trapped in burning buildings. The supervisory personnel and people with high management positions were not represented by the union, so they continued to work to provide Memphis with the best fire service they could given the circumstances. Later that day, the city filed for a chancery court injunction against the strikers. The judge set the hearing for the 5th to determine if the strike was illegal. The most the city could get against the striking firemen was an injunction against violent and mass picketing and an order saying they couldn't block ingress or egress to the city fire stations. Later in the days when the chaos hit. In the first 24 hours of the strike, 225 fires, many set by arson, had burned through a city where about 30 fires per day was average. This was more fires than Memphis saw during the riots after Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, which, let us not forget, was connected to another labor issue. Most of the fires that burned that first night occurred in vacant or abandoned lots, but not exclusively. Twelve of the fires that night were categorized as major, including one that completely destroyed the Vance Ave branch of the Memphis Public Library, the first library opened to African Americans in Memphis. Fires damaged five schools and caused Overton Square, a popular night spot, to be closed and evacuated after a car with firebombs was found in the area. Police said it appeared firebombs were being used to start at least some of the fires. To make it worse, in the midst of the chaos, fire stations received an almost constant stream of false alarm calls, which only slowed fire service even more. The first night of the strike was something out of a horror movie, or maybe a World War II newsreel, with fires in every direction. The public, the media, and the city government all immediately blamed striking firemen for not only the lack of fire protection in the city, but for the fires themselves. Many citizens thought the striking firemen had turned into arsonists and were setting the city ablaze. Police Director Winslow Chapman said that in some of the fires, holes had been chopped in the roof for better ventilation for the fire, the implication being that these fires had been prearranged and that only firemen would have had the knowledge to do this. The first night, two striking firemen were arrested for arson after a high-speed chase, which didn't help the union's insistence that firemen did not set these fires.
2: Uh, We had two firemen that were arrested. They set a grass fire, is all they did. One of the firemen, I was not there, I did not see... The incident, mm-hmm. but one of the firemen I can guarantee you was totally out of character of him. Uh, there was beer on, on picket lines. He drank a few beers and he was influenced <coughs> into going. And sudden, mm-hmm. I'm still convinced to this day that it was a set-up deal.
1: On the same topic, here's Sam Posey, who was vice president of the fire union in '78. Correct. A lot,
0: a lot of things were said that was not true. As far as what we did and as far as burning down, and we did this and we did that. Some of the city councilmen blamed us for setting the bridge on fire. And I asked him after the council meeting, I said, Do you have proof of that, councilman? And he didn't. And I said, Well, well, you shouldn't be saying that if you don't have any proof. And there was uh, a lot of turmoil as far as what was going on.
1: Of course, Firemen as arsonists was just the media and government's perspective. Let's hear who the firemen thinks at the City of Blaze.
2: I am convinced without a doubt that there were so many businessmen sitting there with their business lagging or something, and this was a perfect opportunity. Uh, firefighters were out on strike. Uh, response time was down to nothing. Older men were running, rolling the equipment and it was just a perfect time for them to collect on the insurance.
1: When Memphis awoke the next morning in the midst of ash and smoke, Mayor Chandler had declared a state of civil emergency and had instituted a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in hopes that that would help limit the number of fires. He estimated that 90 percent of the fires seen since the beginning of the strike were due to arson and attributed the bulk of that vandalism to the striking firefighters. In his own statement on the second day of the strike, Curran Huddleston, president of the fire union, said, No one wants a settlement more than the firefighters. We negotiated in good faith as we have since the beginning of negotiations, and we made an intense effort to extricate the city from the current crisis. We made concessions on issues as we have since the beginning, but the city's representatives simply refused to move in good faith towards a resolution of the strike. The citizens should know that we were sucked into this crisis by the city and by years of broken promises and insults to our dignity as working people. The union tried to tell their side of the story, but the media took the story and sensationalized it for their own benefit, for the most part villainizing the striking firemen. Besides the accusations of arson, the firemen were also charged with sabotaging fire equipment so it couldn't be used by non-striking firemen and vandalizing the fire stations in general. Despite what Chandler had said about not negotiating with the strikers, contract negotiations did continue for six hours on the second day of the strike, although ultimately unsuccessfully. On the second day, working firemen aided by the National Guard continued to answer fire calls, and by the end of the day, 125 more fires had ravaged Memphis. The biggest fire on the second day was an abandoned Neutrina Mills plant, where two blocks of property were on fire and caused police to evacuate ten surrounding blocks of residents. The light from the fire could be seen for miles away. The morning of July 3rd, the third day of the strike, as the Sanitation Department workers went to prepare for their routes, they found fire union pickets at the sanitation substations. Almost all sanitation workers refused to cross the picket lines, and most of the trash in Memphis was not picked up that day. Major Wallace of the Tennessee National Guard visited Memphis on the third day of the strike and recalled the last time he was there, in 1968, for a surprisingly and sadly similar situation. He said in an interview that he saw more damage the one day he was in Memphis for the fire strike than he did in the 22 days he had spent in the city in 1968. Later that afternoon, Chancellor Robert Hoffman issued an injunction against the strikers, ordering the firemen back to work. union members did not support the injunction, but voted to return to work anyway, as they realized if they didn't return to work, Mayor Chandler could impose some other order that would limit not only their power in ongoing contract talks, but also their ability to get their side of the story out to the public, which was already very much against them, thanks in no small part to the media coverage. Going back to work was really the only way to keep the union and to have any hope of getting the contract that they wanted. Despite the end of the strike and the continued curfew, 75 more fires burned that night. By the next day, all 51 fire stations in Memphis were fully manned. The union stood, as did its executive board, which was reinstated in an agreement with the city. The union asked the city to consider bringing in federal mediators to help facilitate future contract talks. On the 4th, Chandler lifted the curfew, and most of the 1,108 guardsmen, state forestry firefighters, and marine volunteers left Memphis. 235 guardsmen remained in the city on standby in case anything else should happen. In the wake of the damaging strike, people looked for solutions for future labor issues, and also for someone to put the blame on. Many felt that a lack of communication had led to the strike, and not just between the city and the union, but also with the public. The public never really got a chance to hear anyone's side of the story until it was too late, and they had to make assumptions and judgments off their experience during the strike, rather than off actual issues that caused it. A big part of this story that never got told by the media was how many firemen were really against the strike. Of course, they wanted better pay and to be respected by the city, but they didn't necessarily think this job action was the best way to go about getting it. If they were against it or not, they had to follow the order of the union. Here's Joe on the issue.
0: When you're a member of a union, and I'm a union guy, when when you're... There were issues on the Memphis Fire Department, and there have always been issues historically. When you have a union and your union is protecting you from tyranny, and your union says walk, you walk. Mm. I didn't want to, I did not want, in fact, I I voted not to strike. Mm -hmm. I did not want to
1: strike. Neither of the firemen I interviewed for this project voted to strike. And you can hear in that clip how hard it is for Joe to talk about the strike and following the union's orders. What you will read in newspapers are things like, the fire department sabotaged equipment and they set fires. You will read that the media called them irresponsible and careless, but you won't hear this. Here's Jerry.
2: But, you know, uh, if anybody did not want to be on a picket line, I didn't. I hated it. I despised it.
1: As much as Jerry and Joe didn't want to strike, they understood that what they were fighting for was bigger than themselves. Yes, they were fighting for pay and the respect, but they also were fighting for fair labor negotiations in Memphis. Not only did they feel they had to strike because of pressure from the union, but the fire and police departments both felt the city forced them onto the streets as they wouldn't negotiate in good faith or do anything to avoid an impasse. After the strike, the city and union both held the same positions they had before the strike. So what was really accomplished besides burning the city? With all the chaos, people seemed to forget that the police had yet to settle a contract with the city. The Memphis Police Association was out of everyone's mind for a bit, but the firefighter strike only confirmed the police assertions that the city and the mayor were unwilling to work towards a fair settlement. As much as people backed the mayor, it was clear to see that his negotiation tactics were not the best, and the city had not, since the beginning of the fire strike, contacted the police union executives to request a meeting. Police union president David Baker said he would accept any invitation from the city to continue talks. On Monday night, July 3rd, as firemen voted to return to work, 950 police officers voted unanimously to reject the same 17% raise over two years that the firemen had previously turned down. The Executive Committee of the Union talked about some sort of job action but would not specify. Next time on Forgotten History... We will pick up with a tired and frustrated fire union and a police union that has yet to take its first steps towards radical negotiation.